Africa never spared those who did what they liked instead of what they had to do. Chinua Achebe. Welcome to Warfare, Advancement, and Revisionism. My name is Preston Floyd, and as always, I am your host. I'd like to thank everyone for tuning in this week, and for those of you who have listened prior weeks, thank you again for that as well. And uh, I hope you enjoyed the prior episode on West Africa. Uh, now, uh, this week we are going to continue in that region, although not exactly just in that region as we'll get into in a bit. I didn't have any big notes or feedback from the last episode, so uh, I think we can just go ahead and roll on into the meat of this uh, um, episode's focus. So, um, we're going to be talking about the neighbors of the uh, West African pygmies. And I'll refresh some of what we talked about in our 10,000 BC episodes and expand on it to bring it up to our current time frame. First and foremost, the Sahara Desert, and the, uh, which is north of the Sahel and the Savannah, is still in a green period, a humid period. So there are people we will be discussing um, that would be further north than you will find their descendants. Or at least they would range further north than you would find their descendants. They're still mobile groups. They're still, you know, nomadic hunting, hunting and gatherers. Secondly, the language or languages that they are speaking might be related to each other. Or it's possible that they have already diverged into different tongues well before any period that we have gotten into specifically on the podcast. And what they share in common at this point at 8000 BCE to 6000 BCE is merely, uh, and by share in common I mean the, any kind of language similarities they have in common, is merely due to the fact that the various families and groups have been living beside and influencing each other for so long. Um, but right now I think the most popular theory is that these languages are all in some way related to each other. And that these languages all belong to the family that is referred to as the Niger-Congo family. Uh, and if this family is indeed accurate, then uh, this ancestor language that we're discussing at this point in time uh, has the most descendant languages, uh, with anywhere between 1,000 to 1,500 uh, branches into the modern day. Some with as few as 100 speakers to some with tens of millions of speakers. Um, and that's obviously, that's a very wide range of numbers. Um, because some people argue that there aren't nearly that many languages in it, and it's just um, various dialects of several of these same languages. Uh, so just, but either way, even if they're they're not full fifteen hundred, a thousand languages uh, still definitely makes it the one with the most descendants. Now, as more research is done in the area, uh, then these numbers will obviously get refined and shored up. So, just keep that in mind. 
And the final factor that we're going to be, that we kind of need to refresh on, uh, and it's definitely going to become more important in Africa as we get further, you know, down the timeline, is that just because people speak a language in a specific family does not necessarily mean that they are related to other speakers in the same family. Uh, but that's, again, me getting a little bit ahead of myself here. Uh, for now, though, we need to focus on the environment these emerging groups had to endure. So for this time frame, we can assume that the Proto-Niger-Congo-speaking bands have been in existence anywhere between 1,500 years to 5,000 years prior to 8,000 B.C. Uh, these bands would be taking advantage of the last Green Sahara period that was ongoing. Uh, we have talked about this cyclical climate event before, and uh, I've gotten to in, into specifics a couple of times. Uh, we talked about how the Sahara around 130 to 115,000 years ago was especially verdant and fertile due to the cycle, um, the, the cyclical greening cycle coinciding with the Emian interglacial period. Uh, that humid period, um, or the human period that we're discussing now that is continuing at 8,000 BCE is not nearly as humid or lush, where the Emian Sahara saw savannas with, you know, vast grasslands with, you know, as much as 40% um, of those grasslands covered with some types of trees or bushes and shrubs at, at all the way to, um, or all the way from the, the, what is now the modern savanna uh, and the Sahel all the way up to the Mediterranean climate zone in the north uh, of in the in Africa around those mountains and like around Atlas Mountains that kind of um, latitude um, and there was almost no deserts in the Emian in that area um, the period that we're discussing now the last African humid period uh, only saw uh, foliage covering up the 10% of the grasslands with a few arid sandy pockets between some of you know the rivers and lakes. So again during the Emian period the Sahara and Sahil would be fairly uniform uh, north of the forest and swamps of central and western Africa along the coast all the way to the Mediterranean again in the north. So at 8,000 BC, living north of the Sahil would be very different. Uh, this is probably where we see a marked difference arise between the lifestyles of the Western uh, Pygmies and the Proto-Niger-Congo groups. Uh, one of the biggest differences comes with diet, and that led to one of the Niger-Congo groups to independently create a material that will be a vital part of the region's social, cultural, and material development. Uh, as we have discussed several times already, the majority of humanity's diet is plant-based. Uh, and of course, this covers a wide variety of foodstuffs, uh, but in the temperate and tropical forests, as well as shrublands, a lot of the best and most protein-rich forage is uh, nut-based. Uh, you know, various types of uh, cola nuts, you know, things like that. Um, roots, you know, um, thing, you know, like the yams or um, tubers. 
Um, but in the less wooded, drier plains of the Sahara, wild grasses are much more numerous. Uh, now, of course, nuts are much easier to consume and prepare, and you need less of them uh, f than uh, wild grasses for the same amount of calories. Plus, uh, nuts tend to taste better raw, at least in my opinion, um, and to more easily store, prepare, and cook the wild grasses, these Northwest Africans created their own kind of ceramics for pottery. Uh, the earliest examples of this pottery has been found at a site called Onjogo in present-day Mali, and this dates to around 9,500 BC, but it could have been a bit earlier. Um, regardless, uh, this this spreads quickly to surrounding areas all across sub-Saharan Africa. Um, by 8,000 BCE until the end of our focus at kind of let that 6,000 BCE time frame, uh, it spreads all the way all around the northwest of Africa, and uh, whether they were now, you know, whether they were transported to those areas by whatever group occupied Onjongo, uh, or I'm sorry, Onjogo, uh, as they migrated in the region, or um, if the Onjogo group traded them between various neighbors who then traded them themselves, we don't know what the exact dispersal method was. But this was a shared site. Uh, different people occupy it at different times, uh, and I think they found some human remains, you know, spread a couple of, you know, centuries apart, and certain groups had no relation to some, and certain groups did have relation to laters. So, you know, there's a lot of back and forth in this region. Um, uh, so, uh, and this, uh, this discovery was actually a surprise to me. I hadn't known about this site until I began researching this region for this time frame. I knew that the West Africans had developed their own pottery traditions and in industry, but I hadn't realized it was this early. I thought it was a um, you know a couple of thousand years later. Um, so uh, this is the third region uh, that saw humans create ceramics. Uh, the first being the group in the far east of Asia and the other being Central Europe. Now, of course, the European ceramics were of votive figures. Um, that's all they were using it for. Uh, there were no, as far as we're aware, there's no practical tools that they made. Uh, whereas in Asia, uh, they had developed the first cooking pottery. So, and they would use it to cook, um, you know, again, wild grains, grasses, maybe rice, which is a grass, technically. Uh, and they would, of course, mix in meat and other ingredients. Now, um, I would like to make a couple of suppositions based on this discovery. And I am not the first person to make these observations. But as I was reading up on the site, I had two thoughts pop into my head. And I was a little proud when I saw you know, other people putting forward these theories. Uh, so... I wasn't completely out of base. Um, so, 
the first is, is possible that the first creators, uh, first creators of pottery in this region were women. Um, there is a long tradition for a number of extended tribal groups and cultures uh, that sees the creation of pottery as a female activity in art. Um, the Yoruba and Agbari are two examples. They both speak branches of Volta Niger languages, which is one of the um, bigger branches of the Niger Congo family. Um, there are some Mande speaking groups that do it as well. Uh, and that's another branch, uh, major branch of the um, Niger-Congo family, at least theoretically. Um, uh, and there are others, uh, but those are the ones that I remember from my reading. Uh, in fact, there is a lot of divisions based on sex that might have developed from, you know, the hunting-gathering tradition of women foraging and men hunting. Uh, there's another group, I believe it's the Diula, who are a Monday group. Uh, they have men and women living in different shaped houses. Um, men live in roundhouses, whereas women will live in rectangular ones. Some groups even have a sex-based division of labor on specific crops. Uh, there are Igbo uh, men who focus on growing yams, while women grow all the other crops. Um, other groups see men grow millet and women grow rice. Uh, and I should also point out that these gender roles and divisions are not entirely language group based. Um, there are numerous elements that you can additionally use to point out these divisions like uh, geography and religion, etc. Um, say Igbo groups living in the mountain may not have the same um, uh, gender-based division as Igbo groups may be living along the coast or along a river. It, there's, there's a lot of things that go into that. Um, some groups speaking the uh, same kind of family of language, uh, but in different, you know, in a different place might have, you know, different types of divisions or none at all. It, it makes determining divergence points so, so much fun uh, and frustrating. Um, the second idea that reading about this site gave me was about how pottery spread through other parts of Africa. And again, I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, uh, but there has been debate about the origin of certain aspects of um, the Egyptian civilization. Uh, were they homegrown entirely in Africa? Were they imported in from a people from the Middle East or vice versa? Um, some facets are more easily determinable than others. Um, but pottery has always been one that was harder to get a firmer grip on. The pottery that was being produced in the Middle East or places that Middle Eastern nomads migrated to was different from early prehistoric Egyptian pottery. And I think this site could easily explain why that is. Uh, the southern Egyptians uh, were using pottery based on the Onjogo pottery. And the northern Egyptians were using pottery based on Middle East designs. Um, there are grinding tools that are very similar to those found at Onjogo at a site in Egypt called uh, Bir Kaseba. 
that are made from different materials. And um, again, I'll, I'll get in more to into things like that more later when we continue into the rest of North Africa. For now, though, I, I want to try and focus on the people in the the region that we're discussing. So, unlike the pygmies who are mostly interacting with other pygmies and these people, uh, the Western African ancestors are not an isolated bunch um, at this point in time. Uh, they're probably running up to peoples living in the mountainous regions of North Africa. There are Nilotic people or Proto-Nilotic people living to their east. And of course, um, all three of these groups are able to travel the savanna more or less freely. Um, so they would have interacted in different places than what I am mentioning. Um, probably even than what we have evidence of. And that's not even to talk about um, they have their own extended kin groups to meet and interact with. Um, I would be willing to bet at this point in time there, um, you know, there's a lot of back and forth between a large number of groups, uh, some that may have died out, some that may have assimilated to a larger neighboring group, you know, or who may have um, maybe not assimilated, but maybe um, just kind of been forced out of a region that they were occupying uh, to kind of go a little bit more um, to a more remote place uh, than they've been traveling. Um, but right now, I think that you could, you would probably see that there, there is at least three primary groups of proto-West African that we will that we'll see kind of coalesce first. Um, now, there's not much genetic kind of evidence to really back this up because, again, smaller group numbers just due to the nature of hunter-gatherers um, and the nomadic lifestyle. Um, they, in fact, probably don't have as many people as the Koi and the San. They probably have around the same number of the Pygmies. Um, but I think just due to the um, how many languages there are in that region, it's safe to say that they had enough groups to kind of um, begin this process of multiplying the tongues, as it were. Um, and you need more people to do that. So um, I think in Africa, they're probably they're probably doing uh, pretty well for themselves. Um, so I think there was probably groups that would hug along the Atlantic coast and they would probably go as far north along the coast as Mauritania and the Western Sahara, places today that are extremely hard to live in. And I think they would bounce between the mountains or the mouths of the Senegal River and the Tamanrasset River that ran from the Atlas Mountains southeast to the sea. Uh, this river, of course, has since dried up, um, and I'm sure that there were numerous ponds and lakes and rivers, um, smaller ones, you know, all coming down those mountains towards um, the south. Um, they probably also traveled up the Niger River as well, uh, so it wouldn't surprise me to see them in swamps or marshlands either. Uh, then I think you have a central group 
uh, and this would have been on the same latitude as the coastal group, but further inland, away from the coasts. Uh, they would have been between the center of the Niger River as it kind of bends to the west and south towards the sea and to the plains north uh, between the Atlas Mountains and the highlands of what is today uh, central Algeria. Uh, the locations basically where the streams kind of begin to form um, the headwaters for that Tamanrasset um, and of course there are probably rivers that uh, have since dried up that were feeding into the Niger to the south even though the Niger of course still remains where it is. Um, out of these subgroups that I'm referring to or I'm kind of postulating um, they are probably my primary contenders for the Onjogu uh, group that had a, you know, a lot to do with pottery. The third major group I believe that exists at this time, uh, they're probably a little bit further uh, to the west of the uh, Niger River um, Delta, kind of towards uh, Lake Chad, uh, which is of course today in uh, Chad. Uh, it's also close to the border uh, with Nigeria. So I think they're probably in that area around that lake, which is much bigger than it is today. Uh, they're probably a little bit to the south as well, as well as to the um, kind of to the very uh, north of Chad uh, and maybe as far east even as um, uh, what is now kind of the border of Chad, Sudan area, and then they could be ranging as far north as um, as Libya or Tunisia, possibly. Um, and I'm sure that there are there are other like subgroups as well, maybe not quite as numerous. Um, it, it's a very it's a very interesting region, and the reason I kind of make those judgments is based on kind of a language map, which again, I know is a very dangerous thing to do, especially since, you know, there is a debate as to how closely these languages are kind of um, classified and how closely related they are to each other. Um, but generally speaking, uh, the, the longer uh, a language has been in use, the more divergence and diversity you see in that tongue and so basically um, there are uh, a number of uh, groups closer to um, kind of uh, the coast in sub-saharan africa there's a lot more um, uh, diversity in the languages there then heading east towards lake chad uh, and then south of there, you have a language family uh, that, you know, uh, it's very large, but it is not quite as diverse as the rest. So that's what obviously leads me to believe that, um, that those groups are kind of where they are, because later we see the region have a lot more diversity in languages, kind of where I'm referring to. Uh, but again, I'm sure there are subgroups uh, who either got assimilated by these larger ones or maybe got eliminated or just migrated out of the area before they could get assimilated. Um, 
But I think uh, that second group I mentioned, uh, it's very possible that they, as the desert begins, or as the Sahara begins to become a desert again, they kind of push their way south into um, the Atlantic group, which uh, there's like, it's like a branch and a half, which is the Atlantic Congo, Volta Congo, and they're kind of like, they basically put like a, a divot between them. They don't cut them off completely from each other, but they do kind of like make like an oval in like the map where those language groups overlap. Um, but we'll get into specifics on them uh, later as, of course, we get more evidence about who they are as they develop um, a more, uh, I guess, uh, a more um, identifiable group. Uh, we're still, unfortunately, working out a lot of uh, the past in this area. Um, now, there was one thing that I think I forgot as I was going through. Yes, okay, so when it comes to the pottery group, um, yes, they have pottery. They have begun to eat wild grasses in more abundance, which is, again, why they switched to needing to use pottery for uh, storage and, of course, cooking. Um, this is probably also the, the time where we see the West Africans begin their own domestication process. Um, they're beginning to select uh, the kind of crops that they're going to begin to keep for uh, sedentary agriculture. This is something they developed on their own. Um, they will use local crops to develop their own sources, uh, things like rice millet, pearl, African rice. And I'll do, I'm going to do another domestication special on crops, so this will probably be covered for that period. Uh, but they're, because they were living in a much more um, uh, fertile environment, at least um, for the last 1,000 years or so, um, when they were for a little further south, you know, along those marshes and rivers and things like that, uh, they they probably didn't need to develop uh, their agriculture quite as soon as the groups living in the Middle East is. So their their domestication process is going to take place slightly later than the groups in the Middle East. Uh, but it doesn't matter because um, they're growing their own crops. This is just something that that. That's just how it developed. That's just how it worked out. They weren't um, backward or anything. It was just they didn't have the need to develop these new sources of food and uh, things like that. Uh, but they did have, you know, they had to develop something that uh, the Middle East uh, did not have at our last time either. In fact, I think um, I need to double check my timeline, but I think they have they invent ceramics slightly slightly before they invent them in the Middle East. But um, I think about, if that 9500 date is correct, probably about a thousand years or so beforehand. Uh, but um, we'll get into more specifics on that. Obviously, I, I don't need to get too far ahead. But yes, this is the process where the Africans begin their, um, their own domestication events. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so I think that's a good bit of coverage. Um, I would like to go into greater detail on these people's um, society. Uh, unfortunately, just due to the nature of the region, 
Um, they have a very rich local tradition when it comes to uh, mythology, spirituality. Um, they have had some outside influences, not just from Europeans. Uh, Islam has been in the region for quite a while as well. Um, but I will be covering the local faiths as they become a little bit more identifiable, at least the start of that process. And I know I mentioned some things uh, in the 10,000 BC episode at this time frame. Um, we probably see the beginnings of uses of uh, possibly masks um, for uh, representation of spirits or gods. Um, masks are very important in uh, West a lot of West African religions. Um, another aspect we see is, um, and we talked about this a little bit, there's a division between, there tends to be stricter divisions in these societies than in the Khoisan. Um, I'm not sure why that is. I haven't really seen any kind of um, research, or I haven't been able to find any that kind of goes into that. Um, and I'm not, and that's not to say that the Koi and the San don't have divisions between uh, men and women. They do. Again, we talked about how women do, actually, they provide most of the calories by foraging. And men are almost entirely out hunting uh, game and things like that. Though, again, I know that the San, at least, do have examples of a few female hunters. Although, again, that is very rare uh, and not something that's normally done. Um... But it's not just division between men and women that you'll begin to see emerge in West African societies. There's also, um, they have a lot of formal relationships between um, different, almost caste societies in some places, in some groups. Again, not all, but there are some. Um, and as I look, you know, as we continue to go forward, I want to, I definitely want to try to find some information on why this emerges, or at least some ideas of why this emerged. Um, obviously sedentary societies, agricultural societies, they develop, you know, a lot of institutions for a lot of reasons. Um, so I hope to find out what those, what caused those institutions to develop like they did. Is it just an aspect that's left over from that hunter gathering days or did they have, uh, kind of some kind of, um, issues between the hunting gathering groups and the uh the sedentary or societies that you know eventually as the hunter gatherer groups began to adopt um sedentarism or pastoralism uh was that a way to kind of keep peace is that why they developed these stratified uh, societies or castes between uh specific um occupations um it's something to look forward to, both for myself and I hope for you as well. Um, but yeah, I think this is a good episode. I think this is a good part to end it on. Um, I am going to do a little bit more. I think I think there might be one or two things I need to touch on in this region again. Um, but next week, we're going to at least start to move to the, um, to the east. We're still going to be in the kind of north african region um but um yeah we're just going to slowly move to the east from those uh lake chad groups we're going to talk about the ancestors of the nilo-saharan peoples uh and then we'll cover 
uh, East Africans after we complete North Africa. Um, and then we're going to go, of course, to the Middle East uh, to continue our lessons there. So I think probably by the end of the year we'll be out of Africa for this time frame. Um, but uh, it might be a little sooner. We'll have to wait and see as I kind of outline my episodes. Uh, please, if you are listening on whatever um, kind of service you find me on, uh, if there's a rate feature, please rate me uh, as best you can. Uh, if there is a kind of subscribe button, please do that as well. Um, I haven't uploaded an episode to YouTube since, I think, last week. Um, I'm going to try to put some more um, in the coming days. I have, uh, thankfully, a shorter week because of Thanksgiving. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to take my computer home when I go see my family and start uploading a few more of these uh, you know, just during the day. So hopefully I'll be able to start catching up a little bit better. Um, I know we've only been able to put up like three episodes or so the last couple of weeks. Like that's three a week. Uh, so if you can find me there, please like, favorite, subscribe, all that good stuff. Uh, if you have any feedback, you can reach me at waratrevpod at gmail.com or you can reach me uh, via Twitter at uh, the same handle, I believe. I'll post a Twitter link in the description for this episode. Um, yeah, so please let me know if you have any questions, any constructive criticism. I'm always happy to hear any of that. Um, yeah, and uh, next week's episode should be on schedule. I don't think uh, Thanksgiving's going to interfere with it, with me recording and posting as I normally would. Um, but yeah, I hope you have a good and safe holiday uh, if you do celebrate uh, in America. And if you're in Europe or wherever else uh, I have listeners, I do have a couple listeners in uh, Nigeria and New Zealand now. Uh, thank you guys. Um, but yeah, please stay safe and I hope you have a good rest of your day. Goodbye.